description is not the same thing as instruction. So there's a switch, it's almost like a light switch. With all the technology, all the sensors, et cetera, that we have, we could actually describe movement in so many minute ways. So you've got to use that at the right time, which is not while you're executing it. You're about to listen to an interview for EWS. Intending to provide educational information from various domains in psychology, physical exercise or motor learning, an experienced professional joins in a conversation with our funnel, assisting EWS mission of building a mindset and methodology that can optimize both sport performance and mental health. Hope you enjoy and for that I leave you with your host Gonçalo Marques. Hi there and welcome to another EWS interview. Today we slide more to the motor learning side for athletes development and for those who want to efficiently work their sports practice. We've been providing content more in the realm of mental health education or in psychological processes that occur in athletes during practice or competition, as well as some other tools and methodologies of training that can assist athletes not so much to improve technically, but in their focus and adjustment, or even just to cope in difficult moments. However, today, I bring the two leading researchers of the optimal model for motor learning. And no, I'm not phoning with the adjective here. The name is exactly that, optimal, which stands for optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and attention for learning. This is a model that encompasses some physiological processes and more complex explanations that we will go slightly to it in the conversation. And it also talks about three important sets of mental processes that are important to have in mind and in an adequate way for an athlete to prosper in his her practice. So keep in mind what you're about to listen. We talked about scientific creative experiences that showed specific conditions for better performance results. We talked about the important role of one's expectancies prior to a sporting competition event, the degrees of autonomy and control one senses while performing a task, and still during tasks, we talked about where our focus should be, how and why, and this was a fascinating conversation to me from start to finish, where we go deeper and discuss some implications of what I've just told here, and more, citing some other cool facts. Wait, just a useful reminder. We know you're investing precious time here. So you can also efficiently work your listening experience by checking the timestamps at the end of this episode show notes. You can click over them to jump directly to the pieces that you find most interesting to your needs and wishes. As for my wish, your review and subscription to EWS Podcast. By doing so, we will be able to offer the listeners more quality content regularly to improve the mental game in sports and work. Until you decide on that, keep enjoying this. As for the guests per se, first we have Gabriel Wolf a distinguished professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Dr. Wolf studies factors that influence motor skill learning, including the performer's focus of attention and motivational variables. Her research has resulted in approximately 200 journal articles and book chapters, as well as three books, 
so it is not amazing that she has received various acclaimed awards for her research, and she served as the founding editor of Frontiers in Movement Science and Sports Psychology, and the Journal of Motor Learning and Development, and is also part of the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition Sciences. I must say kinesiology is a science of body and movement, for those who don't know, and secondly, but not less important, we have Rebecca Luthwaite. She has a master's degree in kinesiology, again, and a doctoral in philosophy. Dr. Luthwaite is an adjunct assistant professor of research who specializes in evidence-based practice, psychological and behavioral science in physical therapy, motivation and learning, and has a particular interest in self-efficacy. So it's been said, motor learning principles we go and some precious practices that are encompassed by this field. And these are things that EWS promised to present and deliver in order to assist sports people in their performance realms. We were missing a bit on this kind of valuable content. So today I firmly believe I picked two of the best researchers in this area to help us efficiently work sports practice to anyone. They will call into attention aspects that people are often oblivion to them that could enhance learning environments and individual processes that can lead an athlete to more success. And, well, I don't like to put it on these terms, but as you might have found from this prelude, the knowledge these two women gathered may indeed help athletes to score more goals, score more points, improve their accuracy and, well, optimize their performance on the field. So I'm thrilled and honored welcoming to EWS Dr. Gabriel Wolf and Dr. Rebecca Leothwaite. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm so much looking forward to this one. I have uh, an episode that I presented your optimal theory. That's the main aspects that we will go on to this. And there's a lot of things. I don't know if an hour will be enough to grasp on every aspect and implication on those, but uh, that will be our main goal. Sounds good. Sounds good. And you did a great job yeah. with your uh, podcast there, the Optimal Theory. I listened yeah, to it. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, well, I, I just like to start by knowing what set you both started individually on this path of studies. Well, um, so my background is actually sports sciences. I got my degrees, my PhD included in Cologne at the German Sports Science University. And so I've always been interested in motor learning, really. When I was a student, I took a lot of activity classes and I, I really enjoyed the learning process. I liked learning new skills. And I still find it fascinating. I'm still learning new skills or trying to improve my skills all the time. And so I've been doing motor learning research for a long time. And, um, you know, the attentional focus line of research really got started when I was windsurfing. I, I noticed that focusing on my own movements did not work at all. So I kind of discovered, I guess, by accident, if you want, uh, that an external focus works better. And, you know, I always practice skill, or I like practicing skills by myself. I've done that my whole life and try to figure out how I can improve my performance and learn. So 
when you practice on your own, what you have control over is your concentration, right? And so that, it wasn't maybe that much of an accident that this uh, attentional focus work got, got started. So, And uh, I came to it, as many people do, as an athlete. Um, I played uh, basketball, softball, volleyball, more team sports. And so I kind of tuned to the influences of others in human performance and uh, kind of uh, gravitated to um, the psychological and physiological aspects of performance. And, uh, and our two fields are adjacent to each other, but the blend is really, you know, what we have um, been focused on. Yeah, that, that was the first thing that I found amazing with Optimal. We will go in depth onto the elements of it, but it's that complementarity that I found in both of you. Um, and that prompts me for the next question. What united you both further on? What you found uh, studying Optimal in the beginnings of it? Yeah. Um, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. We actually met at UCLA when I was doing my postdoc. Rebecca had just finished her PhD there. Uh, and so we met a long time ago, but we kept running into each other at conferences. And I guess at some point I... Um, I wanted to do a study um, that was based on some intriguing findings, uh, namely the fact that when you ask people when they want feedback, when you ask learners when they would like to get feedback, what they say is really after they had done well, when they had a good attempt, a good trial. So I thought, huh, that's interesting. And we followed up on that and actually found that people do better when they get feedback after a good trial rather than when they do poorly which they might know anyway. So anyway, I wanted to follow up on those findings. And um, my question, I guess, was, what if you just tell people they did well, even though they may not have done all that well? So if you give them false feedback, false positive feedback, would that work? So I discussed this idea with Rebecca, and that was, I think, one of maybe the first project that we did um, yeah, together. Yeah. So that goes to enhance expectancies eventually. So we... Uh... The task, that, the experimental task that Gabby was interested in involved challenging balance. And I thought that it might be, there might be a little bit of risk involved in giving someone false feedback about their balance, that they might take a, you know, a, a big jump in one direction or another. And anyway, so I thought, well, it better not be about the actual uh, deviations of their performance from from the ideal, but maybe something in addition to that, which you could control, such as social comparative feedback that did not happen to be real, but was a way to say we could put people all in the same position in that sense, even though their actual performance will be varying according to their other capabilities. So because of that, uh, we had two forms of feedback and one had to be more controllable than the other. And um, that allowed us to see that, indeed, uh, the performance and learning was following the false feedback and not the real. So in other words, we started, we told people you were doing better than average. So it's like they said, ooh, great, yeah. let's keep going. And it worked surprisingly, not surprisingly well, but it worked really well. <laughs> yeah. No, I guess it's surprising in a sense, and uh, 
what I saw in my first readings of your model um, was that was first simple things, you know, that positive feedback and uh, it's like it's similar to giving a positive reinforcement that is widely known to be uh, a better tool than uh, negative punishment in order to improve or continuing upon a, a certain task. And uh, then you, we get to see a more counterintuitive stuff. And uh, that's, that's one of, of them uh, giving false feedback, but they, but this feedback can influence further performance in, uh, in a positive fashion. We can go into more detailed examples further on. And, but this also prompts me for my next question that would be, um, besides that, that you have already told, where did you find the importance of the fundamentals in Optimal? Mm -hmm. And by the way, for people who already have forgotten, Optimal stands for? It stands for Optimizing Performance Through Intrinsic Motivation and Attention for Learning. So it's an acronym, yes. Thank you for pointing that out. You know, I mean, it's the optimal theory, but could be, <laughs> no, uh, but it is an acronym, yes. Okay, so as to, uh, to answer your question, I guess I uh, initially started thinking about working on a new motor learning theory in about you know, 2012, maybe. Um, and the reason was that, you know, the last motor learning theory was published in 1975 by Richard Schmidt. It was so-called schema theory. So in other words, we didn't have a motor learning theory for 40 years or so. And however, we had learned a lot about motor learning and factors that influence learning over those 40 years. Um, and so it was time to come up with a new you know theoretical explanation for many findings and that includes almost or more than two decades of attentional focus research it included um, a line of research that is known as self-controlled practice in the motor learning literature we had about 20 years worth of data showing that when people have control over their practice environments they do a lot better than they don't so that was a second line of research. And also we had this emerging and converging evidence that showed that if you enhance people's expectancies, they do really well. We just talked about one example, suggesting they do better than average. So all these things came together and needed a theoretical home. So we started working on this theory and it took, what, three years yeah, <laughs> to put it all together. And I think uh, one of the keys is that you know, research is going on all over the world on all kinds of topics at the same time. And if you only work in a very specific field, such as motor learning or sports psychology or exercise physiology, you don't recognize where the commonalities are occurring. And so one of the ways in which we could, I think a good illustration of the fact that research is going on about probably about the same issue but people on one side of the line don't recognize what's going on the other. So they called the work in motor learning self-control. Well, in the motivational psychological side, it might be called self-determination. It might be called um, 
something other. For example, we didn't. There's a a lot of work showing that if you have uh, people under perceive that they're competent and perceive that they have some control, they are more engaged in, extensively. However, um, that work didn't recognize, for example, that. Um, performance, immediate performance is susceptible to these influences too. They never studied it. They studied sort of long-term engagement in a given environment, persistence and that kind of thing. So they hadn't happened to have the motor learning ability to look at immediate performance and then retained or transferable performance. And so when you put these things together, you see, ah, what we hadn't thought about because we didn't see it in the small, subtle ways was the performance and learning effects. So um, this was a case of blending fields to the point where you brought, uh, you know, the performance learning study, which rarely occurs in self-determination theory or didn't at the time. They're starting to. It, they had more, okay. you know, bigger issues. Um, anyway. Yeah, so beautiful, blending worlds, but also in a parallel way. Uh, I found it in integrative psychotherapy by being more eclectic, by looking more at other schools of thought and getting to know common factors that will impact and influence in the more desirable ways in therapy for, for, for the patients to get a better recovery and quality of life. And uh, yes, uh, this also looks to give more consistency and utility for for practice, I guess, overall. Because as you, as I've already listened in another occasion in another interview you gave, uh, description doesn't equal instruction in mm. the sense that uh, it just not might just not be enough to give. Uh, a clear description to have it be effective and good uh, ingrained in the in the practitioner. And so <laughs> many things you have already uh, spoken give us a hint for the three main elements of optimal, which are autonomy, expectancies, and locus. Uh, may I say locus? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you will clarify better. But autonomy. Um, focus of attention and expectancies. Let's go through each one of them. But first, how do you usually like to present them uh, in first sight, each one of them? So autonomy here means that uh, the learner or the performer uh, has some control over his or her actions, even a small amount of control. So when to start, what to do, how to do it. There's always that um, wiggle room around, you know, a general plan. And so the, the providing enough of that, um, I think, provokes the whole system to be oriented and attending and um, more uh, ready to perform. So it, uh, you know, in uh, self-determination theory, for example, the 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 talk is used to be more about autonomy support and then it became about autonomous motivation and then it became other things but in uh, the motor learning blend you're talking about 
how someone like a coach, an instructor, sets up an environment. So it's a situational influence that coaches and teachers create. Uh, it's not so much that it becomes a part of how the performer goes forward because that's their sort of personality or their disposition. So we're talking about how the situations help get people in the right state of performance and autonomy is believing you have some control over your actions is critical. And again, that's why that's uh, one of the main reasons we are here uh, today talking about this, because as I've said, this is very, for my sense of view, implementable in practice. So I would like to know further on some examples where coaches in this case can promote autonomy in athletes and what will that uh, promote in a way that you've already spoken about. But yes, uh, many times I get the sense that there are some coaches that are not comfortable in giving autonomy to athletes because they want to have it their own way and they have their specific tactics and going beyond that may, might be a risk. But uh, there's some subtle ways, I believe, that we can promote it without um, having to risk that much. But yes, going along, um, expectancies. Expectancies. Well, <clears throat> um, I use the, the term expectancies and expectations somewhat interchangeably. Also, the term self-efficacy or confidence is a part of, but not the whole of expectancies and the reason for this is if you use the word expectations some people apply it as i have high expectations for somebody which just means i can pressure somebody but that's not the spirit of this the spirit of this is that you expect something good will happen as you define it so if something good for somebody means i will achieve a certain time in my time trial that's anticipation of the future in a specific way. For others, it might be that they, they think a certain training technique, like plyometrics, is somehow of great value. So they imbue their expectation in a technique or a coach's strategy or their feeling of uh, readiness that day. So there's, there's just expecting something good rewarding in their own definition of reward. Such a good clarification. Uh, I thank you for that because I was very curious about that because in Portuguese we don't have, we just have a word. Uh, we don't separate it in expectancies and expectations. So it was very good. And uh, for last, the focus part, externally, internally. Yeah. So an external focus really refers to concentrating on the movement effect, the intended movement effect or outcome or the task goal really what is it that you want to achieve you know if you are balancing you know you may want to focus on keeping the balance board horizontal or if you want to hit a target with a ball focusing on the trajectory of the ball or better perhaps focusing on the target will do the trick um, so that these are examples of an external focus. An internal focus refers to concentration on body movements, how you, how you coordinate your body movements. But just thinking about um, body part is often sufficient to disrupt the automaticity and uh, negative effect, no matter what it is that you're focusing on. Wrist flexion, 
basketball shooting or just uh, even a, a finger when you jump as high as possible and try to displace a rung. If you think about the finger that you use to hit a rung, you won't jump as high. And you see, you know, all these superfluous co-contractions and contractions in the leg muscles. So focusing on the body is really detrimental. Focusing on the intended movement outcome or effect, the task goal is really what needs to happen if you want to perform optimally. Well, what you just heard was something probably easy to understand. But to assimilate this or put it into practice is a harder task for sure. At EWS, we aim to translate the theory and mental principles into practice the best way possible. But it all comes down to you. Take a moment to really reflect. Is this good for me? What can I do today to implement it? Again, the keyword practice. How can you translate this into practice? Practice it and go ahead. Keep enjoying the process of efficiently working sports. And uh, sometimes you, uh, it's not about thinking about what the ultimate outcome you want. Like I will win the game with the, with the uh, winning kick in uh, penalty, but it might be that you will create the trajectory of the ball that you want. So it can be a little closer to home that you can control. It doesn't, it's not about thinking about the win per se. It's thinking about your movement effect in the environment. And I know you've got some creative ways to describe to an athlete or any kind of practitioner uh, to substitute uh, an instruction that usually founds our attention in our body movement to uh, get it more external and get it more distal. And we will go through that, but that's uh, also a very good uh, explanation of it and was also a thing that I needed clarification because at first sight, I guess many people would think uh, that in focusing on uh, body movements would be external focus because we are not uh, thinking or focusing in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our feelings. That's also internal, right? But uh, yeah, you get that distinction, uh, not excluding this part that thoughts and emotions might also be internal focus, right? They could well be, yes. Mm -hmm. They could yeah. be, uh, you know, a runner focusing on breathing. Yeah. Um, so it depends on the context, but whether you're focused on your own emotion, your own uh, sensations, mm -hmm. and the way in which your elbow should be held when you perform the given task, that's internal. So you want to just pay attention to what you're trying to achieve in, in the environment, the, the outcome of your movement. Can you and maybe one comment real quick since you mentioned sensations. Sometimes people think, you know, when they have an external focus, they don't really know what they're doing. Uh, they don't feel what their body is doing. But of course they do. They have kinesthetic feedback just as much as you do when you actually have an internal focus. So it's not that. It just refers to what you concentrate on when you're preparing a motion, a movement, um, or if it's a long long duration movement you know you can still maintain your focus but it doesn't mean you don't feel what you're doing so just an aside here it's it's as if there is a time and a place for everything and when you mm -hmm. ready to execute the movement the place is an external focus yeah 
getting that. It's like what I'm hearing from that. It's like uh, we can have some kind of reaction after, uh, for example, in a soccer match, we failed the cross, we failed the pass, we failed the shoot. We have some uh, reflective feedback on our body. We can think uh, just some seconds about it, but then focus on the next play, focus on the next curve of the ball we want for the next pass, right? Just before the moment of execution, we should have a more external focus. Is that yeah. too Yes, right. And uh, to to go with something you said a little earlier um, about what we've described as description is not the same thing as instruction. So there's a switch, it's almost like a light switch. Because you think about it, in this day and age, with all the technology, all the sensors, etc., that we have, we could actually describe movement in so many minute ways, detailed ways. And in fact, it's only going to get more data associated with how you describe what you're, how you're moving. So you've got to use that at the right time, which is not while you're executing it. You've got, you can analyze it. You can coach with that in, in, uh, insight, but when you get ready to either instruct the athlete or instruct yourself as the athlete, you turn that switch off and you say, okay, in order to get that, I have to do focus on um, the point in the net that I want to hit. Uh, so it's a, it's a switch it off and turn it on to a simpler, less confusing um, instruction to your brain. Yes. You know, what I do in these situations when I don't play tennis well or <laughs> whatever it is, golf ball well, I just have to remind myself, okay, just focus on the trajectory, just focus on the target, and you just have to keep reminding yourself that connection focus works just try to maintain it we tend to lose lose the focus over time lose the focus on our confidence and on our autonomy as well actually so it's just reminding uh, as you get into the moment of execution i want to be like on that on that so yeah. Clean it off and go for the next one. It's uh, a mantra I have uh, practicing some sports also. And yes, it's like that cliche, I guess. I can consider it the cliche of being of oneself being in a learning zone or in a performance zone. Because in training, we have more uh, situations and moments to stop and reflect and uh, be more attuned to our body movements, what provoke what. And is that right? Do you have some comment on that? I think I think it's about right. Yeah. There's a time for everything, and analysis yeah. has its time, and an execution you got to get mm. into the state that helps you mm. best. But even if you're in a flow and everything is going well, and, and you know sometimes you just don't do well, and to avoid kind of a downward spiral, you, again you have to remind yourself what you have to do. I think and just. Mm. And your confidence. <laughs> get in the right state of mind. Otherwise, it's not no. going to go back to. And that's a that's a whole uh, whole skill. Very skill. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, you you see here a dartboard mm-hmm. behind me, and I often practice here alone. And uh, I just not yet made the individual research on myself with your theory uh, on throwing focusing on the trajectory or in my fingers in how i in how i uh, pick up the dart and throw it 
but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not finding yet a relation on that. But that might just be a sign of my skill level because I, I, I've already read uh, that uh, this is somewhat dependent on our stage of evolution, right? In a particular skill. Mm -hmm. This is a simple example, I guess, throwing darts. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have some knowledge about some studies in darts or yeah, if I you think about something on this example. There are actually some studies that use the dart throwing task that looked at choice and also extra, uh, an external focus and they show pretty clearly that when people are instructed to focus either on the trajectory of the dart or the bullseye they are much more accurate than if they are told to focus on the release of the dart the hand and an arm and so forth so there's and, uh, and those are usually novice players yeah novice players or people with relatively little experience i think you know really skilled dart players, they would focus on the bullseye anyway. But um, less skilled might focus on an intended trajectory of the dart or something yes. that's a little closer to yes. them. But, yeah. Maybe, I don't know. It's a relatively, I'm tempted to say, simple skill. Mm, very no, not simple, but it doesn't require a lot of degrees of freedom or involve a lot of degrees of freedom. So I don't know what's better, but either trajectory or bullseye. Uh -huh. But both but are I guess, yeah. Whether in darts or any other sports or a particular skill or movement, I guess in beginning stages, people are more pro prone to focus on what they're doing with their bodies, what feels wrong, what to correct. And so automatically it's more internal focus here, right? But uh, I guess that has also some benefits because without that we wouldn't know how to correct ourselves right but then on further stages it's the opposite i guess but this is just me thinking i don't know if you have something well correct well the, i go back to this distinction between description and instruction so when people are very early on in their learning of a skill they're trying to figure out what am i supposed to be doing here I'm supposed to be trying to create a form that looks like this. My elbow does this, my wrist does that, my fingers do this. So I think that's a description issue. So once you've figured out the sequence of events that are supposed to happen and you can shut that off, you, you might find a more proximal external focus that you can achieve. So maybe it is the trajectory of the dart can go and you imagine you can imagine that happening, um, but it, it's still external, and we really don't think there's a place. Although other people do, we don't think there's a place for an internal focus as being beneficial. Yeah. We think description, yeah, fine, do it, but do what you want. But when you get to perform, get your mind cleared out so that it is just one thought, not multiple points or how they work together. You know, people, you said, some people think that an internal focus might be better early on in the learning process, but there's no evidence for it, no evidence whatsoever. We just finished a huge meta-analysis and <clears throat> there's very clear evidence 
for the benefits of an external focus in all stages of learning, independent of age, like I said, skill level, um, task, um, disability or ability, and so forth. So the evidence is very clear. Yeah. And that, yeah. I guess I'm thinking about uh, dart players, tennis players. We often get a sense that when we are learning, we have to learn the specific techniques to have a good forehand and have a good backhand technique. But then you see the pros and see mm, a wide range, many different techniques. And throwing darts is the same thing. It's not uh, a universal uh, prime way to throw always in the bullseye. So that's also that part, uh, not uh, uh, getting the specific description and body movements to get attuned, I guess. Each guy will discover his path, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this also touches on autonomy, I guess. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I, I'm not saying we don't need to learn a technique to become really good at, <clears throat> for example. Yes, we do, absolutely. If you want to hit a tennis ball well, you need to learn how to coordinate your movements. There are ways and ways to do that without thinking about body movements. Maybe I'll give you one quick example. Um, you know, if you, we've shown in a study that when novice golfers are instructed to push against the ground with the foot that's in front, so focus on the ground rather than the foot that's exerting the pressure, all of a sudden the whole movement pattern changes. They show, you know, a nice, uh, movement form that's much closer to what a more skilled person would show just by this through this one cue that the coach might give and that's a challenge for coaches i think to to create cues find external foci that work that change the movement form without having people think about movement form yeah that's the the create one of the creative examples i said before you you've connected to and uh, I, I just throw in this, I often uh, work with people who have had a stroke or another disability and they have to recover their movement skills. Well, they, you could have them think about how they want their hand to look, or you could put a piece of tape on their hand and say, make that tape move in a certain direction. Yeah. Just, so it's so adjacent to your body part, but it's external. And you could describe, make that, um, piece of tape move in this direction. So instead of describing as make your hand go there, make the tape go there. Mm -hmm. That's very simple, but it shows this this very um, clear. Well, yeah. but why do you think uh, is that? Why do you think that occurs? Because at first sight, it's the same goal. It's the same okay. uh, intended movement that we want. So mm -hmm. what's what is happening there? Yeah, and there are other good examples. Can I just mention sure. one one more example uh, that we saw in Rebecca's lab, um, where a stroke patient had trouble walking or bending her knee. So we put little sticks on the knee, one on the thigh, one on the lower leg, and we asked her to move the sticks together. And immediately her gait pattern was much better than when she was asked to bend her knee more. So these little tricks can go a long way. So there's something about... Think so about your body versus the external yeah, effect. 
I mean, you could think of um, thinking about how your body is supposed to move as micromanaging your brain <laughs> because you're saying, okay, I have to do this and then I have to do this and then I have to do that. So you actually have created multiple goals for yourself. Whereas if you have one effect that you're going for, it's lunar. Um, and there is evidence uh, just beginning to accumulate that an external focus shuts down the unnecessary activity. So um, like the co-contracting muscle is not helpful. It's not efficient. If you can achieve it with one muscle and not have the opposite muscles kick in, it will be a more fluid movement. So what the external focus appears to do is to shut down unnecessary activity in the brain, in the legs, in the musculature, so that you're not fighting yourself. Can I just add something real quick? So it's not necessarily that you have multiple goals when you have an internal focus. Even when you have the one goal, bend your knee, or using a balance example again, if you try to keep your feet horizontal versus little stickers on the platform, um, the focusing, concentrating on the stickers or the platform itself will lead to better balance. So it's not having one goal or multiple. It's really about the body, something about... Focusing on us, on the self, is detrimental. More, more content in our mind gets more probability of us getting distracted. And with having just one external goal, it's like our minds and our bodies aligning themselves to attain it. It's cleaner. Following on the thought I was having before, it's likely for a person when something is going wrong, throwing darts, whatever, to focus more attuned to what I could be doing better, right? It's a, it's a valid preoccupation we have to getting better, to correct something in our bodies. And uh, yeah, on one side, we are getting more focused on what we can do better with our bodies, but then we have this more creative and... Uh, simple in a, in a manner it's more simple because it clears up space that can help us more and that's a critical point here to bring it on yeah so good and the other thing that we don't we don't know whether it's the natural state to think about how to move or whether that's because generations of coaches and teachers have used mm. internal focus language and so we have internalized how they taught us because there is some example now, the more that this finding penetrates the teaching world, the more likely you are to hear coaches use external foci. And then athletes can take that and work with that. So it may be it's been so modeled and so uh, pervasive that we think of it. That's how you have to be. But um, we can change and moments of change you know, produce better outcomes. Yeah, and if if we sorry, Gary, just to add this, um, if we think further in uh, states of flow, it's natural to be to have fluid movement, to have automatic processes going on where we just are focused on the play, on the on the the movements outside of us, because we are just a fit, we are just one with the the whole of the game. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing to imagine. 
And yeah. I think that complements beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, just to add this real quick, I think people need to be informed that an external focus works better. Athletes need to know this, coaches, of course. And if you know that, you can, when, even when you're in a slump, if you don't hit the, ten, uh, the golf ball well or the tennis ball, you can play around with different external foci and see what works. Like sometimes when I go to the driving range, I have to remind myself to yeah, push against the ground or just focus on the target or the trajectory. So, and usually I get into the swing of things again and uh, it works. You just have to be creative, like you said. Yeah. And another thing, just reminding what Rebecca was saying about the the muscles that are being activated that are detrimental in some sense, and we are not attuned to that because we are just wanting to correct that specific part of our finger to for it to work better, and then some other muscles in our arm are just doing the opposite of the intended goal. And uh, I guess where I was going with this. Um, yeah, I guess um, it's another good thing to remind ourselves because in a way we look at some videos to get some feedback and correct some things, but then we we can just, th just think in more simple. Yeah, that's a good point. We look at videos, we compare ourselves to really good golfers, soccer players, whatever, right? Um, and sometimes, let me just add that real quick, um, so an image can also help. So, for example, if you're a volleyball player, think about the platform, not about your arm. Platform, that's the difference. Or if you're a gymnast, um, or we interviewed ballet dancers, and they get very creative. They have all sorts of images that they think of, like jumping across a lake or producing a spiral or whatever. So they use images, and that is also an external focus. You don't think about how to do this. You just try to create this or produce this image, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Makes a lot of sense. So good, this part. Uh, but going now to expectancies, how can this be measured and uh, or seen formally and informally? What are some indicatives of uh, good expectancies, if I can put it on this stuff? I mean, it can be a very informally measured or it can be formally measured, such as a scale of zero to 100 to see how confident somebody feels they can do a certain task. Uh, that's a self-efficacy kind of format. People can say, "I, uh, how confident do you feel that you can hit the target in the lower left corner of the net? How confident in the upper right? Well, they may feel I, I can produce that motion better than that. So they would differ. That's formal. But I think uh, we informally can sort of see people's confidence. For example, um, somebody gets up quickly, walks to the starting line. We say, oh, they're confident today. If uh, So the movement itself expresses the confidence because it's related to fluidity and um, uh, quickly moving. Um, uh, there are there are implicit ways. So we have, you know, we can prime people to think of themselves as uh, this is going to be a good day. They go out there and they're moving with confidence, and uh, the coach is detecting it, and that is in essence uh, an informal way to assess that someone has enhanced expectancies for what. We're doing.
which in turn again can lead to more good results. Yes. And maybe in the same way that it frees the body from putting the brakes on. So you have mm -hmm. an accelerator yeah. without the brake, which typically means you can go for it. Yeah, yeah. So that was another thing that crossed my mind while reading, uh, because we often think, well, confidence is a big portion of these expectancies uh, thing, and uh, we often see confidence overall as a, as a, a state that promotes better results, uh, whether it be by uh, signaling good preparation, by signaling uh, professionalism and uh, I guess the main aspect is that one you just referenced because by being confident a player whether whatever the sport may be is just present for that it's it's again that mind space again I guess it's cleared for uh, what needs to be done effectively because we the opposite of not being confident is being preoccupied with something, it's being anxious and then the muscles are influenced and then the contents in our mind, it's not just the technical components of the match at hand. So yeah, I guess there's the main explanation on confidence, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we have more to learn about the impact of confidence on brain activity, but it's starting to show. Mm -hmm. so. mm. And I wouldn't be surprised if you saw something similar to what you have with an external focus. If you're confident, you just focus on accomplishing the task goal. You don't worry about mm -hmm. how to do it. You just do it. And so I think there's yeah. some similarities yeah. here. Keep worry away, yeah. anxiety away, and just focus. Yeah. Because you can't. They, they, are, they are very much interconnected in that sense. And that was also a part of a question that I would like to ask overall uh, between the, these three elements. Is there did you found some hierarchy or codependency between them? Meaning if uh, one can be more important than another or if you found some more significant results uh, or if one just starts to emerge uh, when some other is well established? It's a set of questions here. I don't know if you want to compartmentalize or just answer in general. First of all, I think they're all important. They're all equally important. We've seen that we, we have we have results that show they have additive effects. So if you add, you know, a second and a third you, factor, yeah, you get better performance and learning. So that's they all make an important contribution. Uh, but there there's probably some, you know, there's some linkages. I yeah. just gave you one example, right? Let me just find another one. So autonomy support also enhances confidence. We know that. And if you see that an external focus works well, then that will increase your confidence too. So I think mm -hmm. there are many relationships among those three. And I think what we have to keep in mind, in a way, in science, it's early days. And so people are trying certain ways of affecting expectancy. And sometimes they may not be as good as what they could come up with tomorrow. <laughs> uh, for example, you know, we don't... Uh, we don't recommend that in real life you deceive people, but we recommend that you create a situation in which they can perceive success. So, so studies where uh, novice golfers are shown um, different uh, 
um, circles around a target. There's two circles. One's very narrow right around the target and the other's a little bigger. And you tell the golfer uh, for, for what you should, when you get a good trial, you'll be in this large circle. That constitutes a good trial. They do better, they learn better, and they perform better almost immediately if they perceive it's okay to get it into this large circle. But if you tell another group of people, get it into a small circle, that would be a good trial. Then not only do you experience more success in the, with the larger circle, but um, it is maintained. Um, and you can transfer it to another distance, for example. So you can enhance expectancies by defining a coach can say, okay, what would be good at this moment in time for you is if you can do it in less than 10 seconds. Oh, okay. So let me try that. And you get within 10 seconds and you have perceived it as a success. Now, later in training, the coach says, I think you could do it in five. And so you get a different definition of success, but you're ready for it. You have the, the foundation built with this success and challenge in the beginning. And then you can go for more. So I think we just, in these early days, have to discover what helps people experience a rewarding uh, circumstance in their training. And, and that's where coaches' you know, insight comes in, where you can say, okay, if I give them the standard that they will ultimately have, they will just perceive a lot of failure early. And that will be very discouraging and it, they will have low expectancies for success. But if I figure out how to make them feel successful early, then I can quickly ask them, okay, I think you're ready to up the ante. What do you think? What would be your goal? And so then you've just chained it together with autonomy support. Hey, you, athlete, student, or worker of some kind. We want to know real cases. So tell us, from what you've heard, what have you been missing out? What is one idea that popped into your mind while listening? Feel free to share in the comments so we can assist you further. See ya! And uh, it also brings to mind uh, the full model again, where, we, where there's a balance of challenge, in, uh, challenge of the task and uh, the skills at hand. When uh, there's a match, there's more probability of good learning and having states of flow. And when there's the too much of a challenge and low skill, also known as the, the small circle, may we get some more stress, more discouraged and not learning that much. And if we have a big circle to, to, to fit the ball in, then we get bored and there's no space for growing also. Very good point. Yep. It's, it's uh, the middle ground. By the way, we just completed a dart throwing, a study involving dart throwing, and we put a circle in the middle of the dartboard and told one group, if you hit within that circle, that's a good trial. <laughs> so you may want to add a circle to your dartboard there. And, or just there's a circle. Or imagine it, yeah. It's yeah. the inner or the outer. <laughs> Give yourself some confidence, but that's good if I hit that inner. Yeah. And going through autonomy, uh, You've already talked about self-determination theory because there's also a concept pretty much similar to autonomy in optimal. Uh, did you grab something in specific from there? Did you come up uh, from that standpoint? Or uh, I don't know. I just That's wanted to know the vis-a-vis -vis with that concept. That's a good question. Um, we're, we're, 
I first tuned in to the value of autonomy support, of arranging an environment so it gives a little autonomy, uh, was back in some studies in the mid-1960s that I had read about um, in nursing homes. And they showed that providing the residents of nursing homes with just a little opportunity to exert minor control over what happened in their day. For example, putting a plant in the room um, and asking either, they said to them either, uh, could you take care of this plant and water it? So autonomy agency as a person versus we'll, we're the staff, we'll come in, we'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. So they didn't get autonomy. They didn't get a sense that, hey, I'm still capable. And the group that among many other ways, small ways, like where do you want to eat? In the dining room or in your room? Small choices um, mm-hmm. made for a, a, a better well-being into the future. And in fact, uh, in a follow-up study, they showed people were less likely to die within two years if they had been exposed to the small choices. So that really and that preceded self-determination theory. However, self-determination theory has generated many uh, ways in which you can uh, support someone's autonomy. So, yeah, because just uh, just stopping you there. Sorry, just to give a little review on self-determination theory is where uh, the authors Desi and Ryan came up uh, with the three components like. Uh, individual human needs for us to prosper and uh, be well in life and those are well uh, perceiving competence which is like um, expectancy co- uh, confidence very close um, and uh, perceiving that you are self-determined in your actions so that's the autonomy support side um, also social relatedness that you are included not excluded from social networks, circumstances in a coaching situation, a team situation. So those are fundamental psychological needs that can be satisfied or can be thwarted. And I think that they, my use of that um, is, is that those are rewarding circumstances when you feel competent, when you feel in control of your own actions, when you feel that you're included. So what this opens up is a whole set of intrinsically rewarding circumstances that a coach can play with in terms of expecting a rewarding situation. So you don't have to pay somebody money for them to feel rewarded. You just have to satisfy these psychological needs in small ways. So that's how I take it. That's, that's incredible. Where when the research can find some significant results there, uh, that uh, one of the increased life expectancy yes. uh, is, is, is such a great thing. Yes. And I've always, uh, yeah, I've always got that sense when I was an athlete, and um, I guess it promotes uh, that agency that we are part of a thing that we are conquering mm-hmm. our space. It feels good for us, right? Yes, it and it's just not uh, a job to do, a job to accomplish because we are told to. And uh, yeah, on small things, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was, I am vaguely reminding, I guess it was a study of one of you or some other author. Um, it was a small choice on the, the entry of the lab and then the task got better. 
What yeah. was that one? So this is a study that we, amongst ourselves, refer to as the Renoir effect, uh, the art, artist Renoir. Uh, in this study, people had to learn a balanced task on a balanced platform. And we provided them with several choices before they even got on the balanced platform. And these were incidental to balance. They didn't have any relationship that you could know. And the first one that's very interesting is while they walked in the lab, we had on a table two um, prints of two different Renoir paintings, people involved in a certain activity and another activity, both by Renoir. And we said to the lab participant, they come in, we are thinking about hanging some of these prints on the laboratory walls, which one do you think we should do? So they got included in the decision-making and their agency of a choice was involved. And the second thing we asked them is, we have two tasks, that, motor tasks that you can do after the balance. Do you have a preference for one of these two tasks? And then the alternate yoked group was told as they passed oh, we're going to put this one up in the lab, and this is the task you will do after the balance platform. So they didn't have choice. They um, followed what someone else had chosen. Uh-huh. And then the results of the, the balance platform? The results are that the people who had those two choices um, balanced better and learned better so that when they came back to test uh, their retention of this balancing task, they did better when they had choice. So that is an, an interesting one because it shows that you can actually have introduced choices that are far afield from the immediate task at hand and still get some of this lifting of uh, spirits, if you will, lifting of a sense of agency that would work on the task at hand. And so it's incidental to the task but and small, but worked. And coaches, I think, get very inventive with that one. If someone is stuck in a different technique or something and you want to loosen it up and move it to a better state, I think sometimes you can't ask something very central, very powerful, and hope that that makes them feel better because maybe makes them feel overwhelmed. If the ta- if the choice is too big, too important, um, our suppliers have offered us these two different um, uh, pre pregame meal things. Which one do you think would be best? Now that's totally unrelated to you know the technique work, but it might actually help loosen that person into getting into a better state of execution for the motor task. Mm-hmm. So good. Uh-huh. And that also prompts me for the question for the question on this. That is, um, the degree. Do you find there's a, an optimal degree on the autonomy that should a coach or a teacher provide to his pupils? Because, well, I mean, at what ages or which stages of learning development should autonomy be more promoted or less promoted, and and how? Great question. Um... I, I would uh, say there is no age in which it's not helpful. And that goes all the way to people who have Alzheimer's disease. They still respond to choice and well, so they, they, they don't resist when you have a little bit of choice. 
young children throwing beanbags at a target. Um, if you say, do you want the red ones or the blue ones? There's a choice that's appropriate. You can't go wrong with that. Um, and I think that's the key. If you could go wrong with a choice that you're thinking of, in other words, they could choose not to practice further, then that might not be the choice you offer. So just think of two good choices, appropriate for the person, for the task, and that would be a good choice. But if you could go wrong if they chose a given task, like, uh, what can you think of? Um, well, you know, even, even if you ask older people to choose or not to choose an assistive device, they do much better if they have a choice. So I don't think you can go wrong a lot. Um, the, the usual things that I find in teaching this this approach to people is they start out really wanting to go with it. And so they'd say, what do you want to do today? Well, that is very often too big a choice for somebody who's being helped. Yeah. So you say, I know we've talked about <clears throat> working on these two techniques. Which one do you want to do first? So you know you had plans for both techniques to be worked on, but by giving somebody a choice of which one first, you can't go wrong because those are two good choices. Mm -hmm. Now, if one choice involves warming up, you would want that to happen first. So that wouldn't be a choice you would do. But if you said, okay, now that we're warmed up, which of these two things that also involve the, the same underlying um, ability issue, which of these two things do you want to do first? That's a good choice. So you've prepared the system, the body, the mind, and then between two good ones, which do you go for? And that's good. And I'm also thinking alongside that uh, more instrumental way uh, of coaches using this, uh, for example, in a soccer team, letting the, the, the players choose the next drill if they uh, do this right or if they do this or that. Yeah. It's like a reward in, in itself uh, on doing that. Yes. And asking, and, and asking, uh, asking people for their opinions is a way of providing autonomy support. You're an agent. You make this choice. So, for example, if you said on that last drill that we just did, what did you think was our biggest need to practice? They raise their hand. I think, coach, it was this. And someone else said, I, I'm thinking this. And you say, okay, we'll take a little vote. Which, do you, which part should we practice again first? And then so problem solving, offering up their opinion about what was uh, in need of some more attention might be another way to support autonomy and, uh, and still get the practice you need. Mm -hmm. So to wrap this part up, do you find autonomy can be promoted overall uh, independently of the age or the skill level? Yes, just takes a little creativity and keep it in good choice range. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. pretty amazing. Go ahead. Yeah, this might help on your response also, Gavin. I prepared a kind of a quick scenario of three different athletes. Uh, an individual pro in gymnastics, a 16-year-old soccer uh, player in a wing attack play, where it needs more creativity and there's more room for it, and uh, third, a kid uh, uh, learning to throw a basketball. 
uh, in these three scenarios, how can we promote autonomy and is it better for one and less better for another? You know, again, I, I tend to think that this exact nature of the choice is less important than just simply giving the choice. So if you have a, a gymnast, um, you know, again, the choosing the order of different exercises, for example, is really powerful. We have seen that in a number of studies now. And by the way, not only does it help them perform and learn better, but they're also happier. Um, so positive affect is enhanced by simply giving people a small choice. Um, kickboxer too. Yeah, that's right. We did a study with kickboxers, really high-level kickboxers, including one world champion, and they could choose the order of punches uh, that they had to perform on a standard test, right? So they have a standard test where they perform four punches, four different types of punches in a certain order multiple times. Interestingly, when you let these kickboxers um, choose the order of punches, they produce greater forces and the speed is higher of their punches than if they do the standard test. So again, another example of letting them choose so, the order. So the individ individual professional in gymnastics, yeah. um, you know, there are many ways they could have a little bit of autonomy within the setup of their practice conditions. Mm -hmm. So whether it's which skill do you want to go, do you want to practice first? Uh, or it's asking for their opinion, such as how did it feel for you to put this foot forward first or this foot, <laughs> or uh, what image is it that you find uh, the most helpful? Those are all ways of supporting autonomy. So it's, it's sort of infinite, if you will, yeah, but small. I think the, the key to, to handling autonomy support well when you start is to just say small can be really great. Mm. And I think not appreciating that means you put people in a position where they could feel incompetent. Too much big choice can, can uh, come up against that second self-determination theory issue. So you're, you're balancing perceived competence and autonomy. And so if you go for too big a choice, sometimes you get them out of the range where they feel confident. Now, in terms of that soccer team, mm -hmm. I think you answered it earlier, right? Have the players maybe make a decision in terms of what they want to do. Have mm -hmm. them get creative. Um, tell a story about Phil Jackson. Oh, the um, makers. Th this oh. is a, an, uh, a story about an old coaching situation in professional basketball where you may have noticed over the years, teams have developed this technique where they uh, put the coaches in a different um, area of the court during a timeout from the athletes. And the team players huddle and the coaches huddle. Phil Jackson, uh, former coach, world championship coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, had a technique where uh, he, he probably started this whole process. But... His, he uh, instructed his team during the timeout, you guys come up with a play that you think we should run after the timeout. And we, the coaches, will come up with a play too. And then right before we break for this, we'll get together and you'll tell us what you thought about and we'll tell, us what, we'll tell you what we thought about and we'll see if we, we go with one or the other or a hybrid. So 
their minds were very much in the game during that time out. And they're thinking, oh, I think this would work because I set him up earlier. And I think if we throw it at you after, uh, on the pick and roll, this will work. And the coaches come back and they, if they're smart, they say much of the time, great idea, we'll go with yours. <laughs> the autonomy support that that engages, even a professional player, is worth it. So Now about the kids learning to throw basketball, you know, simple choices like letting them choose the ball, the ball color, for example, has amazing effects. We've seen that in a number of studies. You know, do you want an orange ball or green ball? <laughs> or the that. soccer ball with this logo on it versus that yeah, logo. Right. So Things of that sort. That could be sufficient. Kids get really happy when they can choose a ball <laughs> and it enhances the performance and learning. We've seen that. Or the chest pass versus the bounce pass, yeah. you know. Uh, the kind of pass you want them to learn to do. They can make their choices. Well, again, so many simple ways and uh, many ways that are seemingly unrelated and oftentimes clearly unrelated to the task at hand that can have a positive impact in the performance and learning processes. And this is so great hearing you telling those stories where I guess coaches and athletes get a sense more directly and indirectly where we can promote these three elements. Again, autonomy, expectancies, and focus of attention. Uh, well, we are talking here about learning environments. Is there some another aspects that you usually find there that are assumed by leaders, usually coaches and athletes, as the best methods and ways to improve, and that may not result in a desirable direction? Well, I think all the three things that we have talked about are not necessarily part of practice uh, settings yet. You know, coaches tend to think they need to correct people's movement form right away so that they don't get develop a wrong habit, for example. Um, but, you know, feedback, especially if it's not wanted, can really undermine confidence. And so they need to keep that in mind. And also, obviously, it's really important to highlight the good aspect of performance rather than correcting people all the time. That right yeah. So changing that, of course, giving people even small choices is very effective. And that's not necessarily the case because, just, because coaches think they know best. We have to practice this uh -huh. and that. And of course, and many times they are right, and that's the tricky part here. And uh, yeah. sometimes it's sad because they come from good intent, yeah. and uh, correcting right away is, uh, is, a, is a good intent. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, there's also space, and we find from your words that uh, we don't need to get anxious right away on, yeah. on those kind of situations. And, yeah, is I, there some any other form, Rebecca? Uh, well, it kind of encapsulates um, a lot of what I think works, and that is a collaborative approach. Mm -hmm. Using your players' insights is very, very helpful. It frees them from having to resist, which is a really fundamental way that our bodies and our systems get stuck. Resistance wastes energy. So go with the flow. It, it, clarif clarity, um, confidence, and those kinds of things that go with that 
collaboratives model. Yeah. Um, it's also a tweak uh, getting uh, some systems from uh, dominating uh, uh, fashion, like the the coach has the upper end on everything and get more levels yeah. on it yeah, and getting more the coach getting more feedback from the athletes and not only the other way around. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great thing to find. And I th I think um, you know most coaches are wanting great performance. Well, if it takes these kind of little features built that they creatively build into their team environment, into their practice, into their um, interactions with people, just it's the performance and the learning that counts. It's not my way that counts. So when they can free themselves from thinking I, there is only one way, it's an authoritarian model, I think they can see the impact. So if, if they're really interested performance they should look to this because this is helping performance and of course they need to stop talking about uh, directing people's attention to their body movements yeah yeah They're, they have habits that they have learned yeah. over many decades from previous coaches and and mentors and so um, if they're open-minded about how to best produce performance i think they will go in these directions talk about the shoe or the ball but not the foot <laughs> Or leg. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Well, nowadays, uh, for you both, well, I would like to know your current work and some interests regarding this research realm around this area of motor learning and uh, psychology in learning environments. Where are you headed? Uh, good question. We recently did a few studies in which we combined all three factors and looked at, say, maximum force production. People actually produce greater forces. They can lift more weight. We did one repetition maximum squat lifts, for example, and when people have all <clears throat> three factors present, <clears throat> they lift more weight. Maximum huh. performance is an and, and you, you made uh, sorry just to dissect the design of it. You made the group with the three elements uh, instructions yeah. and the mm -hmm. certain groups with separate yeah. autonomy only, expensive yeah. So in one in this case, we gave one group positive feedback. We just said you did really well. Um, we asked them to focus on the path of the bar. Um, and autonomy was, oh, they could choose, you know, how much weight they wanted to put on on the next attempt, on the next maximum lift. effort attempt mm -hmm. lift. Um, there's also another study in which we um, looked at balance performance as a test called BEST test. Um, which is often given uh, under circumstances where somebody might have had a concussion, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a screening test that's given... Uh, clinically and in applied ways, just to see that people are suited for the performance of the asked for. Um, and in one sentence, combine all three things. So you can use all of the evidence related to an external focus and say, research shows that if you focus on the surface, this platform surface, you will do, you'll balance better. So that actually combined two thoughts and external focus is great. And it enhanced your expectancy if you can focus here. And uh, autonomy, we used uh, whether you 
chose to do this stance first and or this stance second and this stance third so you could make a choice um but there are you can do it in so uh subtle but brief instruction and that's you can put them all together um and it also works it also works better in that condition yes better than not trying those little words Mm -hmm. together Now, another um, paradigm that we have explored is what if you play out in time, putting one factor into the story and then the next factor and then the next factor. So we have a study we talk about as onward and upward, where people are trying um, maximum jump heights. And if you begin in a counterbalanced way so that uh, some people start with enhanced expectancy and some people start with autonomy support and some people with external focus. And so there's all different models going. Uh, it doesn't matter which one you start with, but you start with one. And then the next block of trials, you start with, you do the next thing for that group. And for the next, the last block, you do the third factor. So they're played out in time of approximately 10 minutes as they have practice jumps. The group that got those optimized factors successively by the third factor, they were above where they were the first factor and with the second factor, and they had added an effect of the third factor. Um, My thinking is what is happening is each of those factors is playing a role in creating a rewarding situation. And that affects, um, likely, um, the release of dopamine, which is just a helpful fluid when associated with a motor performance. So That would be a whole other conversation that we could go on at the physiological level. But I'm so grateful for the pieces of evidence and uh, theoretically that you provided here. it's graceful. I, I, I only have to thank you for your work because it interconnects many things of motor learning and psychology. And that was uh, one of the main uh, motors for me to begin and uh, start content to EWS. Uh, and I got a lot of your time. Just want to go to our last question. Uh, what do you find uh, as a skill or characteristic or set of characteristics, if you find it hard to select one, of a great athlete? It's a, it's a really, obviously, critical question to a lot of us who work in this area. And if I were to, to take what we have talked about so far, it's the person that can put themselves quickly into these optimal states of performance, no matter what they've just experienced. So they're resilient in that sense. Um, and they're able to optimize themselves. And in a coach's situation, they're able to put people into this great state of mind um, by ticking these boxes off. You know, have I used autonomy? Here's how I do it. Have I enhanced or expected these? Here's how I did that. I warmed them up in this way. We started with, you know, easy things, moved on to more difficult. So, and then I, when I left the practice field and ready for, the actual game, I moved them back so they had success and they left with success. And so it's the person 
and the athlete and the coach who can um, put themselves in and put people into this optimal state. That's good because uh, your explanation was uh, optimal. <laughs> Excuse me for the easy joke there. But uh, what I hear from there is uh, a summatory of things. It's like uh, having the knowledge of what works best. Uh, picking up from research is also a great thing that often uh, many teams and athletes miss. Unfortunately, it's a growing field in motor learning and as well as in performance psychology. There's a lot of studies that we can bring value from. And uh, adding from that is kind of an openness and vulnerability of discovering what is wrong without being egotistically affected by it, right? Right. Do you, do you like those that training? Yeah. Rebecca? Yes. Yeah. I do. And also knowing that you can enhance your own performance by somehow upping your confidence, giving yourself some confidence, um, and adopting an external focus. I think that may, may also create kind of a growth mindset. You know you can do this. You have tools available to enhance your own performance. And that in and of itself can give you more confidence, perhaps. So it's kind of like a virtuous cycle, perhaps. You know, you know it's good. You apply those things, and uh, performance gets better, hopefully. And and then you get more confident yeah. in the ability to apply those things, and so you're yeah. more motivated yeah. to practice and hang in there. And basically, that combines is integrated with all the other um, performance enhancing biomechanical, uh, physiological, training-related, you know, nutrition-related. It combines, but you, can, you have to put these motivational and attentional factors into the physical body in order for you to perform optimally. So, you know, you're working with what you have available and making it go to its best limit. So good. And uh, as with uh, as with everything, uh, experimenting is uh, is uh, the key here because and being responsive because uh, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of instruction can work for oneself and not for the other. Yes. Yeah, that's the creativity, right? So good. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much to both of you. It was a pleasure for me, and you really got to the roof with my expectations with this one it was very good to complement this part of motor learning and uh, yeah it was was very good thank you well, thank, thank you. you very much Gonzalo. good really, luck to you it was fun talking with you and thank you for your effort thank you for listening to this ews interview to see more go to ewsport.eu If you want to open up a discussion about some topic address, reach out by commenting below or leave a message at ewsport.eu. Hope you enjoyed. See you on the next one.